You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. I'm Jay Mack in St. Louis in the slightly warmer St. Louis than it has been for the past several days. No blizzards incoming. I'm joined by one of my best friends in the whole world. Hey, this is Sam Wade out in Los Angeles, uh, living in a part of the country that stays warm all the time, apparently. so Where it, it never it, snows. It never, it's never going to snow out here. Like I think that's pretty rare, man. I miss it, though. I would like to remind our listeners... New ones, old ones, the show drops every Wednesday. Great time, middle of the week, to just log into iTunes or Google Play or Spotify or SoundCloud. Get your two tape decks fixed. It's one of the best, most informative podcasts you're ever going to listen to, and that might be a little bit hyperbolic, but I'm just going to go with it. I can back that up. I think it probably is literally one of the most informative about something. I mean, like... I guess if it's about nothing, then we can be contending with like that Seinfeld theory. But I think we like to talk about uh, interesting things. And I think there's always something new to be learned in there. And, and, you know, sometimes we just ramble on like I'm doing right now, but it's still interesting, hopefully. Right. Well, one of the things one of the things that people tell me. The the biggest compliment you can give me is a I have a great radio voice and B, I learned something listening to your show. That's. That's kind of what we do here. We talk and we hope that people listen and we hope that maybe somebody can learn something. Um, we're getting ready to do our another Icon series right here. Um, I don't want to bury the lead, but the Icon series that we've been doing gives me an, a reason or an excuse to dig into somebody who I may not have known that much about. This week, I think we're both well-versed on the guy we're going to talk about. I actually have kind of conflicting emotions about this guy. I'm talking about Larry Norman. One of the founders of Christian Rock, I think his press agent, or his, the, the liner notes of his CD said he was the father of Christian Rock. Um, I don't know if I'm willing to go that far. There was a lot of people in the scene at that time, but he certainly was one of the most influential voices in what became Christian Rock music. And you had a large uh, reason. Uh, you were one of the ones that really introduced me to him. I'd heard some of his songs on the radio, kind of in the periphery, in the in the edges of my consciousness my my parents grew up in the jesus movement where larry norman was kind of got his start but you were really my gateway into larry norman where did you hear about larry norman it's pretty you know it's pretty interesting i mean i wouldn't say that i knew about him being an icon at the time that i heard him you know one of the things that we've talked about in other episodes is kind of how we like grew up in this bubble maybe can i use that word a little bit of a bubble yeah i would that's, yeah, that's I accurate think, yeah well in which i don't think is like an uncommon thing for people coming of age and and growing up they have like their certain bubble their community that, that they're in and, you know for us that was like through the lens of being exposed to a lot of uh religious uh themed music um but i wasn't really aware of him when i first heard of him i think i was uh I, I actually, so when I first heard of Larry Norman would probably have been about the time, maybe a year after I start writing my own song. So around 14 years old, um, when I say I was like just graduating eighth grade, like it was that time period. And a friend of my dad's um, actually had introduced my dad to one of Larry's um, 
uh, early signings to his record label, Solid Rock Records, Mark Hurd, which went on to become an icon as a songwriter himself. Um, and and on, he also had like an early passing on um, from this world. But uh, then he kind of introduced me to this guy, Larry Norman, which instantly I was like, this guy is arresting. Like he has like this long blonde hair. He's got like this super, like he, he was like a, a legitimate rock star. He didn't seem like he was trying to emulate, which, you know, later on we found out that all these people are <laughs> in, in, a, in a way, but uh, it didn't look that way to me. I remember seeing the cover for his record, only visiting this planet, which is still my favorite album I am. And on the cover, he's standing, I think in New York city, some city, and you see all these cars in the background and here's this hippie guy standing with his long blonde hair he has like on jeans and i want to say like a jean shirt it's, maybe. A, it's, a, it's completely denim it's a denim outfit yeah. yeah and he looks awesome like some like 60s star right set in like early 70s and he has his hand one of his hands on his head like he's got a headache and i just saw this and i was like oh finally some real music this has got to be interesting right and then i was blown away by this record so I, I naturally I shared it with you because we were writing music at that time. And then we just started like digging into all of his stuff. And and that's when, you know, you know, we started finding out all these these crazy songs he had written. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go once again back to the great Tony Wade, your father, who kind of instigated this whole Larry Norman thing. There was a there was a large percentage of my teens and early 20s where I listened. Probably every other CD I listened to was Larry Norman. I just ate it up. I loved his genuineness, his very transparent some some might say oversharing songs he had some of those songs we can we can we talk. definitely got to talk about that i liked that he wasn't at least to my limited knowledge fake there was so much fake stuff in the world still is and even in christian music now and in the past it's 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 not it's not just christian music but there was like a gloss and a veneer that they put over the struggles that let's face it, normal people have that Larry was willing to talk about heartbreak, depression with not always a, an easy answer of, well, just pray and it'll be, it'll be fine. He really got into some emotionally kind of dark territory. And I remember relating to some of this stuff and I could not find anything else in Christian music at that time that I could relate to the, 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 the depression, the darkness, the gloom, and as well as the kind of cynical attitude that reminded me similar of Dylan or Lennon, the way he could just be so biting. And you're right, only visiting this planet is probably his best album. But if I if I wanted if I wanted to tell people what albums to go listen to if you want to get into Larry Norman, he did a, he did a so called trilogy: only visiting yeah. this planet, so long ago the garden, and in another land. I would say 95% of everything you need to know about Larry Norman will be in those three albums. And I believe they came out in the early to mid seventies. He had yeah, his, and these were like major label releases too. Like Capital and MGM, like, I think. That's right. Uh, Capital and MGM. You're, you're totally right. I mean, like, I, you know, we'll probably take some time to actually talk about these records in between, but I totally agree. I think that's his best period, like his most realized work, like consistent albums. Like if you want to check them out, check out those three. I mean, these were these were records that were done um, for major studios. There really wasn't a, a Christian music industry at, at, at that time. And, nope. and he was part of that whole 60s scene, you know, playing in a band out in uh, L.A. during, you know, while at the same time period as like any of the California bands of the 60s and the Summer of Love were playing. Like he was 
out gigging around at that time. His so, first his first band was a band called People, if I'm not mistaken. The, yeah, that's right. The one song they had, I've never heard it on the radio, but if you if you read Larry Norman's liner notes, it apparently is played on classic rock radio. I love you. I've never heard it. I've never heard that song. Would you know that that's a song by the Zombies, right? Like that's uh, that was originally recorded by the Zombies. No, maybe then, maybe I, that's what they meant. Maybe they play another version of their song. I don't know. <laughs> it totally could be. They did have a. Um, I think it was a national hit. I think they they broke into the top forties with their cover of that song. It was released on Capitol Records in the in the mid sixties. So they they definitely had that. And, you know these guys. You know their band. They they toured with like all the big acts at the time. Like you know apparently they toured with the Who and they toured with Janis Joplin. They toured with Jimi Hendrix and like all of these other guys. So let's get into a little bit. <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit of the controversy that Larry Norman seemed to bring with him everywhere he went. You describe him as a hippie, uh, but he didn't yeah. smoke. He didn't smoke dope, according to anybody, any that I've ever heard. Um, in fact, there's a there's a documentary called Fallen Angel. And they said the one time he tried to smoke weed, he got so weird. They 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 basically they never want him to have it. Again. Like his bandmates didn't want him to smoke again. Now, that's hearsay. But he was controversial in the fact, like I said, he would sing about, he had a line in one of his songs about VD on Valentine's Day. You can't say venereal disease on a Christian song. No, it's weird to say just any time. Like, like I, I think that's one of the things I liked about him, too, is he definitely kind of had this, like, countercultural uh, attitude, which, you know, there was a lot of music written at that time period. I think Only, Only Visiting This Planet came out in 72, so that would be after the tail end of, like, when the Vietnam War, or not the tail end of the Vietnam War, like right in that yep. protest time, but you know he would write like these really like controversial lyrics, like t- talking about a, a land that poured its love out on the moon, and um, calling out like you know I've I've uh, heard I've been listening to Paul's new records. I think he really is <laughs> dead. You know things like that that I, I was like you know gonorrhea on Valentine's Day, VD, like the, the thing that you're talking about, like these really like things that would kind of ruffle feathers, which I think like the, the rebels in us as teenagers like responded to that too. Like, Oh cool. This guy's like talking about things that like you don't hear all the time, you know? Well, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this song and I'm not going to repeat it verbatim, but it was, it was before, before he got his first big record contract. I, I think it was, I can't remember the name of the song, but he drops the N word and, and if, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, really? Oh, you've never you've never heard that? I don't recall it, but I mean, I guess it's not surprising. No, no, it wasn't in it wasn't in a derogatory sense. And but what I mean by that is he was I think he was kind of talking about the like the systemic racism in the country. And right. I mean, even more so now, rightly so. You can't say that word. But I, I, I think it was on his it was one of the bootleg records I got. I turned it on. I was like, oh, my God, I don't want my kid to hear that. Um, no, that's not surprising to me because like he would try to say things like, you know, un- for as long as he was a performer up until, you know, the day he passed. I mean, he tried to say and write things that would ruffle feathers and kind of make people stop and think like I don't I'm not saying that he always did it in the right way. Like he has a reputation of being a very difficult person to work with from what I've heard and, and read. But I think at the same time. He was, he had guts, right? Like he would go up and if he had conviction about something, he would say it and then be contrary. He, he wasn't afraid of being controversial, which I kind of responded to. 
No, I definitely like that kind of, for lack of a more uh, polite way, that ballsy approach to stuff. It did get him in trouble because the Christian music industry was not happy that they had a hippie singing Jesus music, which it's you seem it seems like they would have loved that, but it was the exact opposite. Churches didn't want him in. Rock and roll was bad. He's got a popular song at the at the time. Why should the devil have all the good music? It's kind of ripping off of Great Balls of Fire. Yeah. But he was not afraid to sing and do things that made people uncomfortable. And you got to hand him hand it to him for that. But at the same time, he was he was an outcast by the Christian music standards. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. And I, I kind of wondered the more I learned about him, if it had just as much to do with his abrasive personality as it did with his lyrics. You want to speak to that, what you know about that? Um, I actually think that you're onto something there because, you know, listen, I didn't know the guy and all we know is like the stories that we hear sure. and the the more time that goes on, every time you hear a little bit more, it's a little bit more controversial and things kind of get out. I think that's what happens as people pass on, you know, that the real story comes out. But I kind of wonder if, you know, if him as an outsider, if some of that, you know, might've been of his own doing, you know what I mean? Like intentionally, pushing himself that way because you know for whatever deep-seated reasons that could be or if he saw a marketing opportunity i don't know if it was that or if he really i think he probably really did believe all these things that he was saying but i think that he also thought that his way was the best way and that got him in conflict after conflict and if anything in that documentary is true i mean he was he did some pretty shady things to the people that he uh partnered up with and that put a lot of trust in him well let's move on to his record company he i think was dropped by mgm after a couple albums because his albums never really sold let's be honest if they did we wouldn't be having to explain this guy to you um he did have other albums that were good besides those three that i mentioned something new under the sun was it was one upon this rock was pretty good i was a big fan of stranded in babylon which came out in like 91 quite a bit removed but he never quite ascended the heights as those first three. But let's just speak to he started his own record company, Solid Rock Record. And this is where I think he he gained the ire and the people really started to become really hostile towards him. Because let me just break down what I know and then you can contradict me if you know different. Solid Rock was a record company he wanted to start for budding Christian artists to give them a platform that they couldn't get otherwise. Which sounds like on the surface like a great idea. If you're a Christian band, you're like, "Hey, Larry, the great Larry Norman wants to sign us to his to his record uh, deal, record company." The problem was that he decided that he was. Uh, I could be wrong, but it, it appeared that he decided he was the moral authority of over all the bands, and he could basically veto their albums if he didn't think they were living right. Which gets into this whole real like holier than thou place, which I don't know that that was his intention but that's how it came off what do you know about the solid rock days well i think that you can't really talk about solid rock records without talking about his partner in crime at the time randy stonehill yep yep randy stonehill which is a guy really talented songwriter performer in his own right um you know some people might be like where (laughs) who are these people (laughs) um you need to go out and just go and investigate if you're curious about what we're talking about these are some really interesting characters that you know for some people might qualify as outsider artists just because they were part of a 
of a genre that was more of like its own little sub industry. But that doesn't change the fact that he, that Larry himself really was a genius songwriter and performer. And he had a knack for partnering up with other people that were equally as gifted and talented at, at what they did. And one of his first discoveries was this California kid, Randy Stonehill, um, who went on to really be an icon in his own right, at least in that scene. You know, he's still well-respected. Let's put it this way. I knew about Randy Stonehill before I knew about Larry Norman. Randy Stonehill had a place in the Christian music industry where Larry had either been locked out or locked himself out. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, I know of Randy Stonehill because of his collaborations with a guy named Phil Keggy that I've mentioned before in this podcast. And Randy Stonehill was one of the first, you know, you could probably say he was he was one of the first stars of a budding scene, him and Phil Keggy and Larry Norman, guys like Keith Green. They were the first big stars. Um, Second chapter of Vax was another one. Yep. that was just time. My mom and dad listened they, to them. My mom and dad did too, you know, really kind of like, you know, it's some deep cuts in this, in this sound, but you know, the, it, the, it was definitely a certain genre and style that's worth looking into. I mean, um, so but Larry, after his collaborations on, uh, on, on uh, MGM and on Capitol, um, he went in and he wanted to start his own label. He started a company called solid rock records. I think they were distributed by, uh, word records which is now like a huge corporation in its own right um i think they're owned by epic now sony um or at least they were for a time and he had this whole like uh, imprint called solid rock where he signed guys like larry norman he had a um there was this dude named tom howard who is an amazing uh, arranger and has gone on to work on really big records uh since then um, there's a there was a band called Horrendous or I'm sorry, not um not not horrendous disc. There was a band called Daniel Amos. Yep. Their most famous record, one of their most famous was with this album called Horrendous Disc, which was kind of like this Beatles meets Beach Boys kind of an art rock thing, Pink Floyd. Uh Mark Hurd was another guy that was on this early uh, uh inclination of this. And so I think it was a vehicle for him to release the music that he wanted to release without interference from a label. And then also do the same thing with these other artists. But, you know. But the problem was, the problem was he would he would keep their albums and wouldn't release them. Like if he found out somebody had a beer or something, it was real arbitrary. And I think he made a lot of enemies. He made his own little, he made his own little Apple records. And then it, there was a lot of sour grapes after that. A lot of sour well, grapes. You're talking about like holding, you know, with withholding things based on people aligning with your specific ideology um, value system yeah or you know ideology that starts to get a little cultist doesn't it yeah it does and it, it basically made him kind of like a very guruish figure amongst these people where you had to have larry's approval to do stuff but i mean i don't want i don't want to undersell the fact that all this aside larry was a brilliant guy and i i, I actually when i hear the solid rock story i hear a guy that probably had his heart in the right place. He was really trying to be be what he considered to be what uh, an ideal Christian, and and I can relate on a certain level. And I'm gonna share a little personal stuff. I guess I can forgive Larry for some of his stuff because there were times in my life where I would be real holier than thou, and maybe it was coming out of a place of insecurity. But 
a lot of it had to do with a fear that I was going to screw up in front of God and Jesus, and I was going to be responsible for leading somebody down the wrong path. I don't know what Larry's idea was, but long story short, he made a lot of enemies, and he it took him a long time to get another record deal after that. I think he didn't do another record for uh, a Christian record company until Home at Last in 1989, which was a terrible album. Well, he even like founded for a while, like it was like a mail order record label called Fido. Oh, I, 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 I probably got a newsletter. I used to, I used to send my checks in the mail and they would mail me Larry Norman stuff. <laughs> it was pretty cool too. And he was spelled really weird. Like P H Y D A D E A U X. Like, like French. Yeah. It was pretty, it was pretty gnarly. Yeah. Pretty like, well, that was the thing too. Like one of the things I like about Larry Norman is like, if you dig into his music and especially if you read the liner notes, not only are they like a little bit, you know, egotistical and larger than life, which you got to hand it to him. He know how he knew he knew how to tell a story and he knew how to make 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 uh you know the sense of an icon to make it worth listening to. And you see it all across his his work. Like there'll be like little hidden messages and Easter eggs. Like if you look on some of the early record uh pressings on the vinyl pressings and you look in the dead wax he he was notorious for writing little messages in the dead wax that were like little hidden things and and like acronyms and like he had like this overarching kind of like symbolism wound into his music which i you know i for both of us as young budding songwriters and curious and that stuff i don't know if you remember that but we used to like really kind of obsessed like trying to solve these mysteries oh yeah yeah and then we would actually add our own little mysterious messages on our own tapes and albums that we release completely parroting larry norman like I, yeah well i mean yeah then wasn't that the time period for that kind of stuff too like once i heard about like how the beatles in the inner groove they had like you know if the needle didn't go back it would just keep playing the same sound or if you remember when, like, in 91, when, when Nirvana Nevermind came out, on track 99 on there was the like CD There was, was like a hidden one, wasn't there? Yeah, it was a hidden song. And so there was a lot of bands doing this kind of stuff. And I think we found that kind of stuff happening earlier on. We were, like, really intrigued by that. Like, oh, we got to solve these mysteries. Yeah, and Larry Norman, I'm telling you, one of his albums, I think it's uh, Something New Under the Sun, it looks like a crazy person got a pencil and scribbled messages all over it. But, but that was part of the mystery and the appeal of Larry was you, and it had to be, it had to been intentional. He wanted to create a mystique around himself and he did a good job and he did, he kept people interested at least for a while. He did, man. And you know, one of the things that stood out to me too, I was watching something recently where it was talking about, I think this was like in the late sixties there was some um, movement at Berkeley um, for, and it was the word strike. And it had like this, this stylized image of a fist. Yeah. It was like, you know, he saw that and he um, instead printed something on the back where it was like one finger pointing in the air yep. with a cross next to it. So imagine that. And then it just had this one slogan that said one way. And it was this idea that there's only one way to heaven. Right. Well, that symbol ended up becoming, the internet or i guess the international symbol for the jesus movement kind of like this resurgence of christianity among the youth uh in the late 60s right during that same time of the summer of love when people were looking for other things to fill their lives with you know like they were like tuning in and dropping out kind of a deal some it was like the woodstock thing for some people found this this new form of uh, christianity and that symbol of that one finger became like the symbol that people hold up for like one way 
And you got to think now that that's tied to like when you see sports players like holding their finger up, pointing to heaven, the, all that kind of started with with that same thing from him. That's pretty incredible if you think about it. Well, and there was a Christian bookstore, at least locally, which was called One Way and didn't it wasn't it didn't have the finger on it. So it was one right by your parents house, remember? That's right. Like one of my good friends worked there too. Like that I'm still friends with to this day. It was like, we would go and like hang out and that was a place where I'd find music, you know, cause it was what it was, it was what I had, you know? Well, but yeah, that, you know, he was, he was like notorious for creating these, these ideas that people could rally behind. And like, you know, he was a great marketer for sure. And would create his own iconography. Well, let's speak a little bit to the idea of what the Jesus movement was. I'm actually going to pull it up on Wikipedia. It says, Jesus music known as gospel beat music in the United Kingdom is a style of Christian music that originated on the West Coast of the United States in the late 60s and early 70s. This musical genre developed in parallel to the Jesus movement. It outlasted the movement and spawned it. That spawned it, and the Christian music industry began to eclipse it and absorbed its musicians around 1975. It was kind of like the charismatic movement. Speaking in tongues, for anybody who who knows what that is, um, what became known as like the hippie hippie Christians, for lack of a better term. They look like hippies. I think that's fair. They look like hippies, but they didn't smoke dope, they didn't drink, and they didn't listen to John Denver. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So they're like they're like the straight edge hippies of the time period in a in a way too like you know they were they were looking you know I I think you know I can understand why you know there would be like a whole crop of people moving to and to, to get behind ideas like this like an old religion but born in a new way and kind of like reframed um because I think what what some people try, started to figure out like you know during during the whole hippie movement was that it wasn't exactly what it looked like from the surface. Like yeah. I remember watching that documentary um, about George Harrison that Scorsese did about 10 years ago. And George talks about in the, in the late sixties, he went over to San Francisco when they were on a break from like uh, doing some doing some Beatles records. And he walked around the hate Ashbury area yeah. where like all of these people in San Francisco hung out. And he was like, it's not what I thought it was at all. He was like, there was this people just like being fools and doing drugs all day. Which, you know, I know that wasn't the whole picture of it, but he was just totally disillusioned by that. It wasn't what it was projected to be. And I think that some people, when they found that that it wasn't this great revolution, they thought um, they kind of shifted their focus to other things. And this was one of the things. And so the Jesus movement was born. People were like, okay, maybe this is the answer. Well, and like, for instance, my experience as a kid uh, being a son of, a, a child of the Jesus movement parents, what they would do, they threw out all their records, no matter what it was, Beatles, Stones, John Denver. I, I threw them under the bus earlier. Anything that was not of God, so to speak, Sabbath, anything like that. And to replace it, Larry Norman kind of fit that bill at the time. He sounded like a little bit like the Stones, a little bit like Janis Joplin, a little bit like Bob Dylan, a little bit like the Beatles, and he was able to fill that void because my parents literally got rid of every record they ever had. God, I wish I had their record collections back then. It would be so sweet. Right? There's probably some, you know, who knows? Maybe on your record shelf you might have found one of them again yep. without even knowing it. But your your parents were part of the Jesus movement too, if I'm not mistaken. Am I right about that? 
I, I think that they were part of like the, you know, the later part of that, you know, for sure probably came out of some of that. Um, you know, they probably would say they did a lot of the same thing. Um, you know, um, I think that it's, it's interesting, you know, how there's that kind of crossover to, to one of our other topics we've talked about, like being like music being used to control. Absolutely. Um, I kind of wonder if some of that was happening, you know, cause these, these are kids, you know, these are kids like 18 to 20 years old, maybe sometimes even younger being told by people that are older than them, you know, maybe to, to follow these guidance, but it's really no different than like, you know, in the sixties when John said, you know, the Beatles are more popular than Jesus. And then there was these massive burnings of Beatles records, you know, that happened like, you know, the, the music equivalent of, of, of some book burning. So I, you know, it's, it's just interesting to me. It's, it's interesting to me when like people um, react with these big grand gestures of, of things, but I can understand where, it, where it comes from. And I think that, you know, for me listening to Larry Norman, ironically ended up kind of being some of the cracks in that way of thinking that eventually led me down other paths, you know, I, to I, look at these things. I would agree because Larry Norman questioned the norm which led me later on to question the norm, to question some of the stuff Larry Norman was saying that I accepted as, you know, one way to heaven and all that. So I would say that he was definitely a, a stepping stone to other things. And I will say this, he influenced so much of my music at that, at that period, the kind of the forsaken love ballad, the kind of psychedelic weird stuff. I couldn't listen to the Beatle albums I wanted to. I couldn't listen to Pink Floyd. I could listen to Larry Norman and Larry Norman, uh, you could say emulated or copied or stole or how, whatever you want to say from some of the best artists of the time. And I still maintain those three records uh, in another land so long ago, the garden and only visiting this planet still hold up for me. I still spin them quite frequently. And I, I, I it's not it's not unusual for me to spin it after a Beatles record. And I don't feel like there's a giant jump in in quality. You know what I mean? Well, George Martin did a string arrangement on only visiting this planet and they recorded the record at George Martin's studio air studios. I mean, there was, they were, they were still making these records just like any other album. You know, you could almost argue it's similar to like all things must pass where I'm not saying it's on the same no. level maybe, but it's the same idea where like, you know, these singer songwriters are just writing about, you know, their lives and, 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 you know, what they know. Um, and he had some amazing players on these records too. Like they had the bass player from King Crimson, John Wetton, Gordon Giltrap plays on one of the songs. Um, like I said, George Martin actually did a string arrangement to that song. Pardon me. Do you remember that song? That's gotta be his most uncomfortable lyric. We've talked about this elsewhere. Um, but the song, pardon me, pardon me, kissing you like I'm afraid, but I know I'm being played with and you'll leave me. When you get the chance, watch you go, watch you walk away alone as your clothing comes undone and you pull the ribbons from your hair. Pardon me. That's uncomfortable lyrics. I'm surprised <laughs> I remembered that much of it. It was pretty eloquent. I'm surprised too. Hey, I got a funny story about that song if you want to hear it. Please do. And I, I think I know what it is, but drop it on me. I love, I love this story if it's the one I'm thinking of. So, you know, one of the things we talked about tonight is how, like, you know, there was kind of like, you know, this this kind of uh, attitude of being larger than life kind of a deal with with Larry and you kind of having guts to talk about things. 
So when I was a kid, I was involved in a youth group, like a lot of us are. And I was on, you know, one of my first experiences playing music was on um, the band for the youth group, right? So uh, one thing that we would do sometimes is we would do like a song that was special for that night that we called a special song. Well, me and my friend Kevin got the idea. They're like, you were like, we're going to do this song by Larry Norman. Pardon me. <laughs> and we actually sang this song that is described in the liner note about being pressured for sex. We sang a song for all of our youth group. We sang this song and performed it. And when it was done, like the room was just like so quiet. They didn't know what to do because it was just so like, not only was it like these lyrics that were like super grown up, but it was about sex. And everybody was like, at that point, like, no, don't talk about sex. Don't talk about sex. And here we are singing this song. And I got a talking to afterwards. I got taken into the room. Of course you did. Yes, I did. And we got set aside and they were like, um, you guys did a good job performing that. <laughs> you can't sing songs like that for YouTube. <laughs> Which I counted as a win in a way. I was like, okay, well, at least someone listened, right? Yeah, and I feel like I feel like that, like you know, the saying, "What would Jesus do? What would Larry do?" Larry would have played it at youth group. It's a really yeah. uncomfortable song, even to listen to. When the first time you hear it, you're like, "What the hell is this guy talking about?" But it's also a tragically beautiful song. No, like it is like a, like a like a hidden gem on the record, and you know, knowing that the string arrangement was you know arranged by George Martin is pretty cool because you know it's not like he did that a lot on on different artists, and like he had his artists that he produced and and worked with, but the fact that they got him, and you know, probably you know, spent some time talking him into it to get it and get him to do this is pretty awesome. Not not everybody can say that they have a George Martin arrangement on one of their songs. It's pretty cool. Well, and then let's talk about where his career goes off the cliff. And the story was that a, a luggage, something in the luggage compartment dropped on his head in an airplane or something, and he had brain damage. Well, I heard that it was like, um, I heard him describe it as, you know, he was standing up in the, or, or sitting down or whatever, but he was in the, in, in, in the plane and a big like section of the ceiling of the plane came down only on his head, like broke away from inside the fuselage and broke down on his head and his head like stopped all the blow. Okay. Well, that's, that would make more sense than a suitcase falling on him. But yeah, so he, he knows what the true story was. Cause he like, he would amp up his stories and they would get more fantastic every time he told them. But that, but that right. was, his, that was his line. And he said that it affected his short term memory. He, he couldn't remember. He could remember like, people's names, but like if you went to the grocery store, he would forget to get to get to get the groceries out, and he would forget lyrics to songs on stage. And that I can attest to that. There's videos of him. Look, I mean, he looks lost sometimes. He's improvising sometimes. I think he just actually cannot remember the lyrics, and it wow. really affected his ability to record because to record, as you know, you got to be organized. You can't if you if you have memory issues to record multiple tracks on multiple songs you could easily get lost and forget what you've done forget to write notes and yeah. he blamed that for his career issues i would blame other things i would bl blame the changing of the music industry in the 80s he really got lost because he was a child of the 60s and 70s his music didn't translate in the 80s people were throwing out this there's 70s were not cool in the 80s it was like passe that was absolutely yeah it was that whole you know that's why things like new wave caught on and punk like people were like you know 
happen. Let's do something new. Right, you and he, he couldn't sell records in the 70s. He certainly wasn't going to sell records in the 80s. And then in 90, 92, I believe, he had a heart attack, which really, really, at least according to him, really crippled his ability to be able to do things. I mean, being on the road's hard. Um, and sadly, he passed away in 2008. He was only 60 years old. In the last 20 years of his life, he really didn't do much of note. It was it was almost like he burned out quick. Yeah, that's pretty amazing to think about. If in the early nineties he had a heart attack, because that means that he was in his forties at the time, which is it had to be pretty alarming. That's our. That age. was also at the time that was that was also the time in his career when he had like a major resurgence. Like one of the things we hadn't even talked about in this conversation is arguably one of mo- one of his most controversial songs, but also one of his most well known, which was this track called "I Wish We'd All Been Ready." So, so this is a song um, that is, it's like this song about um, the return. It's by, well, it's about the, the, the apocalypse and about uh, the rapture. And it like paints these pictures of like two men walking up a hill, one disappears and the other is left standing still. Like, it's like really laying on the guilt about like, I wish we'd all been ready, um, you know, to be, you know, when Christ comes back. Right. Yeah, and it was it was sung really sweetly and really softly, but the lyrics are chilling, chilling, chilling. Let me read the lyrics. Life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Children died. The days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun, S-O-N, has come, and you've been left behind. And this this next verse speaks to the rapture, which I'll let you explain that after I'm done with this. A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. You want to speak to the rapture? This is creepy stuff. It's really creeping me out a little bit. But we listened to this like on loop, dude. And this was arguably his most popular song according to my my recollection of it well i you know this song became like um in in an anthem as well like there was this movie that came out i think it might have been done by billy graham uh, industries i don't know for sure but it was called a uh, a thief in the night yep it was it was creepy it was like a 70s like horror kind of vibe to it well, it was totally like in that same vein of films like the uh, the Omega Man or Westworld or like these these genre films about like uh, apocalyptic uh, events or dy- dystopian ideas. It was right in that, and you know, it's this this whole like um, it's about it's about like you know the uh, Antichrist coming and like you know basically things from the book of of uh, of Revelation. Um. Which is my favorite book of the Bible because it makes no sense and it's so weird. Yeah, it's definitely like a like just you know chapter after chapter of a fever dream. Like, yeah, it's definitely some interesting things. Um, all this symbolism, which as a songwriter is a you know amazing material to work with too. Um, but yeah, I mean this song just was you know what I what makes me uncomfortable about this song is is, is the amount of fear that instills in, in kind of like the ideals behind it. Like, um, like you need to be good because if you don't, the worst is going to happen instead of encouraging, you know, goodness inside of people that I believe exists in us anyway. Um, but it was incredibly popular. 
And part of his resurgence in the early 90s was through this same song. Now, we knew about this song ahead of time because we listened to these records. But, you know, I think it, it was about maybe 20 years, 25 years after it first had been released. And so people were starting to record it again. And there was a band that, were, you know, that these guys end up being like icons of, the, of this scene on their own. This band called DC Talk, who were like, like really big. You know, they were like a rap rock band. They were really big. They had a big song called Jesus Freak, which basically sounds like Smells Like Teen Spirit. Anyway, they they did a version of the song. And what it did was it put it back into the spotlight. Yep. And they, they did a performance where they brought him on. And it, it, you know, people started rediscovering his music again, which I'm sure was an awesome resurgence in his career, especially after just having an art, a, a heart attack, right? Well, yeah, the song references the rapture, which is, I don't even know if all Christians believe in it. It's the idea that, that Christ will come back and people will disappear. I think there's an HBO series about something like this, people just disappearing. And I remember actually a couple times in my life wondering if the rapture had come. Because oh, dude, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? Like, because it was instilled in me from a very young age that if that if I if I don't, you know, have all the right things crossed off, that I might get left behind. That yeah, Jesus will come back, and then we get left. And you'll right? be like, I I was in my house, I was downstairs in my basement, and it got real quiet, and I was like, hello, hello, <laughs> and I'm like, it can't be. But there's that split second where you think it is, and then you hear somebody clanking around outside. You're like, okay, that's fine. But it was it's actually I know that, that that fear dude. I I I really have been there before. I I think people growing up in the in the time period that we were in, they probably had similar fears. <laughs> it was a horrible feeling which made it a great song. It made it a fantastic song. And the way like I said, look this song up. I wish we'd all been ready. Larry Norman, go to YouTube, Spotify, it's everywhere. It's it's and I remember him saying that he didn't feel like he wanted to do it in a rock and roll way because it sounded so somber that he wanted to make it soften the blow, so to speak. And he he actually believed everything he wrote. He believed the rapture was coming. I don't think if you didn't, you could write a song like that. Um, Probably not. Um, and, you know, you're right. It is amazing material to talk about and to write about. And I think that's kind of what drew us, uh, you know, you and I in our in our other incarnation besides the podcast. You know, we've released some music um under the band name tomorrow never knows yep. where we kind of like bring in some of our beatles influences tnksongs.com tnksongs.com go check it out um please please do we would love it if you would stop and listen to our music we hope you love this podcast but you know anyway i'm gonna stop the plug um it's out there but you know it is relevant to talk about the fact that we covered one of larry's songs on the ep that we released um on halloween last year um this song called Six Sixty Six, which is about the Antichrist, and well, man, does it not make an awesome like psychedelic rock song to sing words like that? Well, and once again, he had a dark side to his stuff, and I don't know that a lot of other Christians were saying these things. And maybe my thought was, I think a lot of Christians thought like, well, let's keep this on the on the down low. Let's not scare him. Let's get him in a church and then kind of ease it on him. But Larry Norman would just be right up, right up front. God, Jesus is coming back. People are going to disappear. You're going to be left. Or the Antichrist is going to fill his pockets with blood. And, you know, all the, just this weird imagery. I I read the last interview that he ever did, and we'll kind of wrap up the show after this. And he seemed, he was in a nursing home because he was too ill to 
to uh or like an like a hospice or something. And he, he in the interview he broke down crying. He's like I don't he was confused and he was kind of frustrated and disappointed at how his life had turned out. I don't know why. I I don't have I can't give you specific quotes, but he he seemed like he died a broken man, which is unfortunate but not unexpected. But if I if I got if I could say one thing to Larry, it'd be like, Larry, we may not agree on a lot of your religious or any of your religious ideas, but your music touched me in a way that very little other artist, save maybe a handful, a real select handful, ever got to me on the level that that you did, Larry. And for that, I will always be a Larry Norman fan. I think that his music, yeah, aside from all these things that we kind of touched on, um, uh, and I don't really want to you know, just paint him in like this tragic light. I, I think he was a genius. I think that he was, you know, is deserving of the title and icon on our show because he really did influence like so many people. And I can definitely speak to, you know, myself, like um, the way that he structured songs taught me a lot about like uh, lyrical phrasing and, and, and how the, how, how those songs were arranged and attitude behind it. I mean, he has a reputation for being just a completely dynamic performer. Like you see videos of him and it dressed all in black with his, you know, bright blonde hair, just going crazy on stage and looking awesome and doing the whole rock star thing. Like he was a rock star. 100% he was a rock star and he was more than that. He was a songwriter. He was a producer. He ran a record label. I mean, he, he went out and like crafted, um, this whole world for himself around his music um, that few people are able to achieve. Um, and, you know, a lot of the times when, when there's artists that do this kind of a thing, there are these stories that, you know, you could paint them almost as like a narcissistic way. It could be framed that way. I'm not saying that I know that it's how Larry was, but you can't deny the fact that he crafted and built an entire universe around himself and a platform to present this music that he was, you know, spearheading at that time period. Would you not agree? I would. And that's why I don't, I was hard for me to read that interview where he, where he was, I mean, he was sick and he was old, not as, not as old as he should have been, but it was hard for me to hear that from a guy that changed my musical taste. And, and, and you could even say changed my life to a certain extent. He had a profound influence on me. Because he was not afraid to sing right or wrong about whatever was on his mind. And like you said, he looked cool. When he was on stage, all he had to go out on stage was with a, with a, with his, they had, I think he had a classical guitar he would play. And okay, occasionally, do you remember when he would bring the gas mask out on stage with him? Yeah. Just, I, I actually went and found a gas mask when I was a kid at an army supply store just so I could have one too because Larry Norman had a gas mask. I remember that, dude. Do you still have it? <laughs> I, it got lost along the way at some point on the journey, man. But I definitely had that, you know, because I wanted to be able to hold it up like he did in that picture. I, I thought it was so cool to have something like that. Like he was an icon, man. Speaking of which, one thing I want to talk about be, be, uh, before we um, jump off this is, have you ever seen that video where um, Frank Black, Black Francis from the Pixies actually comes out on stage and performs uh, Watch What You're Doing with him? No, there's a video of that. 
Yeah, they actually ended up being friends. See, Frank Black um, was one of the other artists who uh, covered the same song we did, 666. I've actually seen it perform. Uh, I saw Frank Black perform it live uh, at the old Rock House in St. Louis um, about 10 years ago. Um, but with Frank Black and the Catholics, they did a version of this song. Larry heard it. They ended up being friends. I'm summarizing a lot here, I'm sure. Um, but then there was a performance out there of Larry doing the song and Frank Black actually comes out and trades verses with him and plays guitar on it. It's awesome. I mean, that says a lot about Larry too, that a dude like that, you know, is into this stuff. Well, if I would, if I could leave our listeners with one thing, it's, you may not have heard of Larry before this, but please check him out and he will be worth it. Occasionally you hear a name and you have somebody tell you, oh, you got to go check out this guy. And you go, yeah, 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 sure, yeah, sure, well. Larry is that guy you got to go check out. He will be worth the time investment. He will be worth your 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 interest. He's a he's a compelling figure. He's compelling to look at, compelling to listen to. He had a very unique voice. I just can't say enough about how Larry influenced me. So check him out, Larry Norman. LarryNorman.com is his website, but go to YouTube. There's all kinds of cool stuff about Larry Norman on YouTube. I mean, he's totally like one of those artists that could have a documentary made about him, like Searching for Sugar Man or um, like that Scott Walker, uh, what is it, 30th Century Man. Like, you know, he's definitely one of those like com- compelling artists that has like a whole amount of work that you wouldn't even, you'd be surprised to discover the depth of what he was able to create. It's, it's definitely worth uh, checking out. And it sounds incredible on vinyl. It does. And you can still, you know, some of these records too, like there's, there's copies of his vinyl out there that is really rare and can go for a lot of money too. Like these things that he created just um, are, are very singular in a lot of ways too. For two tape decks and a mixing board, I'm Jay Mack. And I'm Sam Wade. Saying, stay, stay Cosmic. cosmic.